Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. If you notice on the, the bulletin, the diagram's a little unusual this week, and it's a, it's a picture of a man standing at a crossroads, and one side there's a bunch of what would be classified as healthy food, and one side with a, classified as a bunch of unhealthy food, and, and you know, the, the saying goes, you are what you eat, and, and the essence of that simply is this, that if you eat healthy things, um, you tend to be healthy. If you eat what I would say good but unhealthy things, um, you, you tend to not be healthy, and it's also true for our minds. Like, we have to feed our minds daily. We feed our minds, and we can feed our minds with things that are good and healthy, or we can feed our minds with things that are bad and, and not healthy. And we are what we think. We are what we fill our minds with. And so if that's true, it's important for us to know what kind of things should we think about. What kind of things should we seek to fill our minds with? And Paul gives us the answer to that question in our passage before us this morning. He tells us that we are to fill our minds with godly things. So I ask you to stand in honor of God's word, and I'll be reading from Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. This is the word of God, and it is absolutely true, and it is given to us in, in love. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your word. We know that your word is true, and we know that we need to hear your word. Father, we pray particularly as we are exhorted to pursue godly thinking and godly living, we cling to the promise that comes with that, that we will have the presence of the God of peace with us. And so, Lord, I do pray that even now this morning that we would feel his presence in our lives. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds, that we would not simply hear the word spoken to us today, but that we would be transformed through the renewing of our minds, and that we would see Jesus in a new and fresh way this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So Paul begins this passage with the word, finally, which means that, that this verse, these verses are the culmination and climax of everything he's written thus far in chapter 4. And if you remember from last week, the first half of chapter 4 contains a bunch of exhortations. These are a bunch of commands for us as Christians to pursue. We are to stand firm in the Lord in verse 1. We are to recon- seek reconciliation in the Lord in verses 2 and 3. We are to rejoice in the Lord, to rejoice always in verse 4. In verse 5, we are called to, to, to be reasonable, or that's better translated as to be generous and gracious towards others. And then in verses 6 and 7, uh, we are called not to be anxious. Don't be anxious in anything. Um, and, and these aren't suggestions. These are actually commands given to us. These are things that, as Christians, we are expected to do. Now, we don't do them in our own strength. We do them uh, humbly and dependently upon the Lord And as we pursue these things, as we seek to obey these commands, we're given a promise. And the promise is that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ. And now we come to verses 8 and 9. And Paul concludes these series of exhortations by telling us how to think and how to act. Once again, this is something we don't like to be told. We don't like to be told how to think and how to live. Um, But that's exactly what Paul is going to do. And he gives us another promise at the end of this passage, at the end of verse 9. He says, the God of peace will be with you. So the the presence of God, 
is the fruit of godly thinking and godly living. Now let me clarify a couple of things before we really dig into this. The first is this, that Paul is not giving us the gospel in these two verses. He's not telling us that as long as you think rightly and act rightly, you will be saved. No, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And, and Paul has clearly taught that earlier in Philippians. He is writing these two verses to believers. That's his assumption. His assumption is that you are a follower of Jesus, that you have already been saved. And as a believer in Christ, Paul is telling you that if you think rightly, and if you live or act rightly, the God of peace will be with you. And this leads us to the second thing that we must be clear about. As a Christian, God is already with you. He is always with you. That is the heart of the covenant promise, that God will be our God, that we will be His people, and that God will be with us. So if you belong to Jesus, there is nothing that will ever change that. God is with you right now, and He will always be with you. So Paul is not teaching us that if we think properly and if we act properly, then something new is going to happen to us. Something uh, that we don't currently have is going to come to us uh, because God is with you now as a Christian. However, we can experience the presence of God in, in various ways and in different degrees, depending on what's going on in our lives, depending on, on things that are happening around us. And we know this is true because there are times in your life where God just feels distant to you. And there are times in your life where God feels especially near. He feels especially close to you. What Paul is teaching us here is that one of the ways that we can experience God's presence in our lives is, is through proper thinking and proper living. If we pursue godly thinking, if we pursue godly action, then we will experience the presence of God in, in, in new and profound and tangible ways. Uh, that he will be near to you. Even though he is already with you, you would just experience his, his nearness or closeness in a different way, in a more profound way. And the fruit of his presence in your life is going to be great. And, and Paul particularly, in this case, focuses on once again on this idea of peace. That's why he, the attribute he points out is that it's the God of peace. That peace is only possible through God. And the more we experience his presence, the more that we will experience peace. The more that we'll experience all those promises and everything that was exhorted to us in, in the first half of chapter 4. You know, we'll know joy, we'll be able to reconcile with believers, um, you know, we'll have uh, freedom from anxiety, all those kind of things, the more we experience the presence of God in our lives. Um, and so the fruit of these exhortations is experienced in the presence of God in a, it is in a more clear and powerful way. So let's look at each of these. So the first exhortation is found in verse 8, uh, so I'll read that again. It says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So Paul provides us with this list of virtues, and then he commands us to think about these things. And depending on what version of Scripture you have, it may also say to dwell upon these things. And the word Paul uses here means to, uh, to, to, to take into account carefully. It's actually a mathematical term that means to calculate. Paul is not commending to us some kind of simple or light thinking. This is deep thinking. We are called to ponder and to reflect upon these virtues. It's, it's, a, it's a thinking, a deep thinking that requires time and effort and energy on our part. 
And Paul commands us in, in the present tense. So this is not something that we had to do in the past. It's not something that we need to do in the future. It's something that we need to do now. We need to always be pursuing this. We need to always be pursuing godly thinking. We need to be reflecting and pondering and dwelling upon uh, these virtues in our lives. In other words, there are no days off from this. This is not an optional thing. This is not something that you can kind of just do whenever you want. We're expected to be doing this regularly. Our minds are to be actively engaged in considering and calculating and dwelling upon the virtues that are listed here. Really, a good word for that is meditation. Now, meditation has a lot of bad connotations, and Paul is not using that word in the way the world uses it. The world says, really, the heart of meditation is is to empty your minds. That's not Christian meditation. Godly meditation is not about emptying our minds. It's about filling our minds. And it's about filling our minds with the right kind of things. And in specific, specifically, it's to, that to meditate means to fill our minds with these virtuous things. To fill our mind with godly things. And as we do that, it's going to humble us. It's going to encourage us. It's going to reassure us of what is true and what is beautiful and what is valuable, what is good. It's going to remind us of God's promises to us. It's going to reorient our minds to think as God thinks. To be able to see His handiwork, to see His works in and around us, in our lives and in the world around us. And not only will this meditation, this this godly deep thinking, um, do that, but it will also encourage us to connect our minds to our wills and will also affect our our feelings and our emotions. It will affect our hearts and therefore change our desires and our motivations. So the more we do this, the more in tune we'll become with what God desires for us. So, So consider that for a moment. Consider the impact that this pursuit will have on your life. Consider how pursuing and godly thinking, this, this godly meditation on these virtues will change your life and your perspective. It will result in your mind being more and more in line with the mind of God and it will change your desires so they are more in tune with what God desires for us. And that's something that we should all desire, something that we should all want. And that's what God is commanding you to do. He is commanding you to think about these things. So what specifically are these virtues we are called to think about? Well, if you look at the list again in verse 8, you are to think about things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. And here's the interesting part, is these virtues that are listed here are virtues that the culture would also say are good. These are things the cultures would say are commendable, that we should be we should be pursuing in our lives. Matter of fact, when Paul wrote this, you know, the, the, the Greeks, these are virtues that they upheld high. Uh, and it's true today that these are virtues that are still commendable today. So is Paul telling us that we need to think like the world thinks? Well, certainly not. That's not what Paul is doing here. And that's why Paul goes on to mention things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And if you look, he phrases those differently. He says, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise... These are rhetorical questions, and the answer is certainly yes. There are things that are excellent. There are things that are worthy of praise. And the important question is, who defines those things? Who defines what is excellent? Who defines what is worthy of praise? Now, you've heard the phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Now imagine if you applied that proverb to this verse. So in other words, imagine if if we thought that um, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable things are determined by the eye of the beholder. In other words, they are determined by us. We determine what we feel 
are true, honorable, just, etc. We determine what is commendable. We determine what is excellent and what is worthy of praise. That's what the world wants. That's what the world wants us to think. That's how the world works. And if you're honest with yourself, that is what you want too, right? We want to be able to determine what we feel is excellent, what we feel is worthy of praise. We want to determine how to define these terms that are listed here. But that's not what Paul is saying. God and God alone determines what is excellent. He alone determines what is worthy of praise. And that really is the key to this whole passage. Because we are not commanded to spend our time and our energy meditating on things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable as we define them or even as the world defines them. No, we are called to spend our time and energy meditating on those things as God defines them. So how can we know what God defines as truly excellent and worthy of praise? The ultimate answer to that question is, is through the Word of God. This book is God's revelation to us. This is, this is what He chose to reveal to ourselves about Himself. This is where we go to find out what God desires of us. This is where we go to find out what is excellent and what is worthy of praise. It's the Word of God that shows us everything that is true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. And therefore, we are called to meditate upon this Word. We are called to think deeply upon this Word and to reflect upon it and to ponder it and to apply it. That is the the primary and most important way of how we fulfill this command given to us, to think deeply, is to think deeply about the Word of God, to spend time wrestling with the Word of God and pondering it and considering it. However, we'd be wrong if that's where we stopped. You see, God has revealed Himself to us through two means. He's given us His Word, which is a special revelation to us. This is His most important revelation to us because this is how we know God. This is how we know what He wants of us. But He also has revealed Himself to us through creation, through nature, through the world around us. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that what can be known about God is plain because He has shown it to us through creation. And then he goes on and he writes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. God has made Himself known through His creation. And we see this throughout Scripture. You know, all of creation declare the glory of God. We can see His handiwork all around us. And so one of the ways that we can meditate on things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable is by enjoying and pondering the created world in which we live. So spend time outside. Go to a zoo or go to an aquarium. Take hikes up in the mountains or go to spend time on the beach. I know most of you won't have a problem with that command, but I've told you before, you know, my, my happy place is, is going up on, on a mountain, taking a hike up in a mountain and, and finding a place where I just get to overlook the valley below. It's at times like that that I, I truly feel like I, I meet with God as I, as I just look upon the beauty of His creation. I, I feel His presence I'm reminded of his power and his beauty, but I'm also reminded of my finiteness, my smallness, of how dependent I am upon Jesus, and it leads me closer to him. Jenny's happy place is the beach. Those, Those places are kind of transcendent places for us. It's places where we just... We learn more about ourselves, and we see that the beauty and power of God before us, and it it draws us closer to him. 
So part of what Paul is telling us here is to enjoy all that creation has to offer. Consider all the ways that, that creation, that the beauty around us points to a creator. Ponder how it reminds you of your smallness and your finiteness and how it humbles you and reminds you of your utter dependence upon Jesus. It's interesting if you read through Scripture, a lot of the imagery used in Scripture actually comes from nature. It comes from creation. And that shouldn't surprise us because creation always points back to the Creator. So part of what Paul is commanding you to do here is to to, to meditate upon nature, to meditate upon this created world. Now, a word of caution needs to be given here because this can easily be abused. Because as we think deeply about the created world, as we think deeply about nature, we must never do that divorced from the Creator. Our deep thinking about these things must always lead us back to Him because creation was designed to point us to a Creator. It was designed to glorify God. And so if we are meditating, thinking deeply about things in this world, in such a way where it's not pointing us back to the Creator, there's something to miss. But the other thing we need to to be reminded of is the climax of God's creation is humanity. Man was made in the image of God. That means that even in our fallen state, we are able to create things that are true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. I was reading an article at a Table Talk magazine recently, and this is what it said. It said, all human beings are made in the image of the true and beautiful God, and though this image is marred in the fall, it was not totally eradicated. Thus, although God-haters try to suppress the truth, they are never totally successful. Despite their best efforts, they do arrive at a knowledge of at least some truth from God's revelation in nature. The hearts of unconverted people may be ugly in sin, but they can and do often see and create beauty. Since every human being is made in the image of God, we are all capable of creating things that are worthy of our time and energy to to think upon. Fallen humanity can create things that we should meditate upon, things that are true and honorable and lovely and just, commendable. Now, there are many implications of this. The first implication is this. That we should praise and thank God that He can use even sinful man, that He can use fallen humanity to create things of beauty. That we are able to create things that are excellent and worthy of praise. The second implication is that we really shouldn't be surprised by this. God is the creator and giver of all good gifts, and so we should not be surprised when we find His good gifts in nature. We should not be surprised when we find his good gifts even at the hands of sinful man. The third implication is that this teaching shows us that we are free to enjoy things around us even if they are not explicitly Christian. You see, Paul is not telling us to only focus on things that are explicitly revealed in the Word of God. He is not telling you that you have to spend your entire life thinking about Anything and everything that is Christian is Christian only. And this is important to remember because we are not called to remove ourselves from this world. We are not called to to form some kind of commune society that has no touch with the world around us. No. We are called to live distinct from the world but in the world. We are called to live as citizens of heaven first and foremost but as we are citizens on this planet. 
And therefore, there are lots of non-Christian things that you can and should enjoy. So think about, ponder, meditate upon anything that is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable as God defines it in the world around you. So enjoy beautiful art. Listen to, to good music. Read good books. Watch quality movies and programs. Study science and technology. Be amazed by architecture and medicine. And the list could go on and on and on. There are lots of things that should just amaze us, that we should spend our time thinking about. Because there's so much in this world around us, there are many things that humans have created that are worth your time. So fill your mind with those things. But we need to do this with discernment, and we need to be careful. Because we do live in a fallen world, and we live in a world that is populated by sinners. And therefore, there is also much in this world that is not good. There are many things that are not worthy of your time and your energy. There are many things that you should not be filling your mind with. So how do we tell the difference? How do we navigate this? Well, remember what we said earlier, that God is the one who defines what is truly excellent and what is worthy of praise. And so if you're spending your time filling your minds with things that don't meet His qualifications for excellence and praiseworthiness, then don't pursue those things. Don't fill your mind with those things. Some good questions to think about to help us figure out how to discern this and how to navigate this is, is, one question is this, does what you're filling your mind with, does it lead you closer to Jesus or does it lead you away from him? We should only think about those things, we should only spend our time filling our mind with things that actually draw us closer to the Lord, draw us closer to Jesus. And this is hard to do because we are bombarded each and every day with things that are trivial, with things that are crude, with things that we should not be filling our minds with, whether that's through social media, through streaming services, through the newspaper, through TV, through all sorts of means. And it doesn't mean that those, those means, those vehicles are inherently wrong. It just means that we need to be guarded and we need to be careful and we need to be discerning. Here's another good question is, do you ever actually stop and pray about the things that you read, the things that you watch, the things that you listen to? Do you ask God if you're filling your mind with things that are actually good and that are godly and that are helpful, that are excellent and worthy of praise? Because there are so many things that you can fill your mind with. What Paul is doing in this passage is he's showing us this is sort of the boundary. This is the fence around your mind that you should have, that you should be filling your mind with these things and not anything else. Another way to think about this is to think about the opposite of these virtues. You know, do you spend your time pursuing things, filling your mind with things that are false, dishonorable, unjust, impure, wrong, filthy, or shameful? Because if you are, you need to reconsider what you're doing. Now, there are two other things I want to address here before we move on. And I just confess, I'm guilty of both of these um, more often than I'd like to admit. But the first is this, that I think there are times where we allow ourselves to fill our mind, that we allow ourselves to read things or to watch things or to listen to things that are not good, that are not godly, that are not helpful, that are not excellent, that are not worthy of praise. And we justify it by saying that we just want to know the culture in which we live. We want to be able to... To, to be able to have a conversation with our neighbors so that we can share the gospel with them. And the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, that's not the reason. The reason is we just want to watch it. We want to read that. We want to listen to that music um, with no thought of using it to evangelize our, our neighbors. 
I think the other thing that often happens, particularly in, in our tradition, our Reformed tradition, is that we also often use Christian freedom as an excuse to pursue things, to fill our minds with things that are not good or godly. And we need to repent, both, repent of both of those ways of thinking. Now, there's a fine line here, uh, and we need to seek the Lord's guidance. But this is important, because consider why God commands us towards godly thinking. And that is that the fruit of godly thinking is a deeper experience of His presence in your life. So whether you are spending your time and energy pursuing things and filling your mind with things that, that are good and godly, um, the question to ask is, is, are these things that God wants for you? Because God is with you. And this is only possible because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And not only is God with you, but he's, he's changing you. Paul talks about this earlier in Philippians, that he, he actually promises that he's going to complete the good work in each one of us, that we will be like Jesus one day. And that really is important to understand as we consider this because these virtues that are listed here, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. They ultimately are pointing to him because Jesus is true. He is honorable. He is just. He is pure. He is lovely. He is commendable. He is excellent. And he is worthy of praise. So ultimately what Paul is telling us to do is is to think about Jesus, to meditate on things that point us to him. That may be in things in, in nature around us. It may be, be in things that are created by human hands. And certainly we can find that in the Word of God. To think about Jesus. To meditate on things that's going to grow your knowledge of Him. That's going to deepen your relationship with Him. And not to pursue things that are going to take you away from Jesus. And as we do this, we will experience more and more the presence of God in our life. Now, this is going to take time and effort So don't let busyness be the reason why you don't fill your mind with praiseworthy things. This is what uh, Ligon Duncan once said. He's a pastor at First Pres in Jackson, Mississippi. He says this, The pace and preoccupations of our lives, especially in our contemporary world, conspire against deep thinking. They do that together by preoccupying us with the trivial so that we never get around to the profound and the permanent. And by filling up our minds with the trivial so that there's no room left for anything really important. And by keeping our schedule so packed that there's no time to do any deep reflection. So spending time meditating on things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable, it's, it's worthy of your time and energy. This really should be a priority for us. Because not only will this enable us to experience the presence of God in a more real, tangible way, um, it also will affect the way we live our lives. And that's, that's where Paul turns next, and we see this in verse 9. When he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So not only are we commanded to pursue godly thinking, but we're also commanded to pursue godly living. Um, and, and the reason for that is because our minds should shape our actions. They affect how we live our lives. The, the, what we think affects what we do. And so Paul uses himself again as an example. He tells the Philippians to put into practice the things that they've heard from him, they've received from him, they've seen in him. Specifically, he's telling them to evaluate his words, his letters, his teachings, to evaluate the way he's living his life and to, and to imitate him and to put into practice the things he puts into practice. And we're called to do the same. We've talked about this earlier in Philippians, but you know, we should be pursuing uh, mentors and shepherds in our lives, men and women that are further along in their walk with the Lord, that love Jesus um, and that are faithfully serving him. And, and, and we should watch them, not in some creepy way, but watch them. See what they, what do they watch? What do they listen to? What do they read? What place does the Word of God have in their life? 
and then seek to imitate them. Imitate them as they pursue godly thinking and godly action. Watch and see how they fill their mind with things that are good, things that remind them of Jesus and point them to him. One way to help understand kind of what Paul is teaching us here, just imagine for a moment, I know this applies to some of you, but if you have a teenage son or daughter who just turned 16 and it's time for them to learn to drive, and so this is your, your, your approach. You hand them the little manual on driving and say, just read this and you're fine, and then go drive. That would be terrifying, right? That's not how it works. Um, it's, it's, yes, you need that knowledge. You need to understand the you know, rules of safety and how a car works and all that kind of stuff. But you also need the experience of, of having somebody who has, knows how to drive show you how to drive. And there's some teenagers in back saying that's not true. But it is true. And uh, <clears throat> one experience, I remember when I, when I was, uh, had my learner's permits, probably 50, 60 years ago, um, that my dad was taking me out. This is, I think, only the second time I'd been behind the wheel. And... We were driving down a windy country road, and this giant pickup truck came flying up behind me and got right on my tail and honked the horn, was weaving back and forth, was yelling all kinds of things I can't mention here. And I panicked. I didn't know what to do. And so the only thought I had is, you know, of course, I had to slam on the gas and go as fast as I could to get away from them. And I almost wrecked our car. And my dad made me pull over, and that was a teaching moment. It was something I learned in that experience of how to handle situations I would not have learned just from a book. I had to experience it. And, and so Paul is telling us similarly that we don't just learn how to live the Christian life simply by reading a book. That's a big part of it. But we need people to show us how to apply it, how to put it into practice. And so that's what Paul is commanding us to do, is to pursue godly thinking. And as we do that, to put that thinking into practice. And we need mentors and we need shepherds to show us the way. So we are commanded to do these things. We're commanded to, to pursue thinking, to pursue godly action. And we need, this, we need each other to do this well. And as we do this, look at the fruit. We, we mentioned at the beginning, the God of peace will be with us. So in many ways, we are what we think. And we are called to be like Jesus. And so the question for you is, are you filling your mind with things that are like him? Are you filling your mind with things that are true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable as God defines those things? Are you spending your time and your energy meditating on things that are excellent and are worthy of praise? Because what we spend our time filling our minds with, we are going to become more and more like. And we struggle with this, and we are going to fail. The good news is that Jesus came to save us from our sins. He came even to save us from our sinful thinking. And he has made us new creations. He has given us renewed minds that are able to actually pursue these godly things. And Jesus wants us to be more like him. And he's promised to complete that. That there is coming a day when we will be like Jesus. And that day will be when we see him face to face. But until that day comes... We have work to do, and that is to consider carefully what you fill your mind with. Stephen Lawson wrote this. He said, like produces like in the battle for the mind, so be careful what you allow behind the steering wheel of your mind, because either it will take you where you do not intend to go or drive you deeper into the peace of knowing and obeying the Lord. 
Thomas Chalmers, many, many, many years ago, preached a, a pretty famous sermon that was titled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in that sermon, he argues that you know, in the, in the, if you're fighting temptation or a bad habit or something in your life that you want to get rid of, one of the ways to do that is just to remind yourself that that thing, that thing you desire, is not worthy of your passion. It's not worthy of your pursuit. It's not worthy of your time. And that's important. We need to do that. But he also shows us the other way to fight that is to find something else, something that we desire even more, something that we have a greater passion for. And that actually is more powerful in fighting that temptation. So if we find something that, is, that we find more desirable, that we're more passionate about, that is more worthy of our time and energy, it means that temptation will have less and less of a hold upon us. And in essence, that's what Paul is telling us here. He is commending us and encouraging us and challenging us to fill our minds with things that remind us of Jesus, that point us to Jesus so that we have a greater passion and desire for him. And as we do that, the world loses its touch upon us. It loses its influence upon us. And as we do that, we become more and more like Jesus. We get to experience the presence of the God of peace in our life in more profound ways. And Jesus will be glorified. Let me pray.